the all-electric Hyundai Ioniq 6 is sleek, full of advanced tech, and has a range of up to 360 miles. Any drawbacks? Yeah, every Ioniq 6 comes with a complimentary EV charger and up to $600 installation credit, so you're going to have to figure out something else to spend that money on. The all-electric Hyundai Ioniq 6. Hyundai, it's your journey. EPA estimated 361 mile range for Ionic 6 SE long range rear wheel drive with fully charged battery. Actual range varies based on trim and other factors. Actual charge time varies based on charging unit output, temperature, and other factors. Call 562 314 4603 for complete details. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover, and so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Capital Region and Bracebridge Hall, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family Support Services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to Mea Culpa Investigates. Just a few hours ago, you likely turned off your television in disgust after watching our Commander-in-Chief lie, bully, and cajole his way through the debate. It's a very, it makes me sad, because I am, I, I am the least racist person. I can't even see the audience because it's so dark, but I don't care who's in the audience, I'm the least racist person in this room. The man is incapable of speaking truthfully for even a moment. If he's not exaggerating his accomplishments to burnish his inflated ego, then he's hiding information to save himself from future prosecution. Tonight, I'm dedicating the next hour to chronicling the financial crimes, corruption, and sleazy conflicts of interest of Donald J. Trump. Consider it a tonic for all the lies and bullshit you just endured. And it wasn't written whenever they write this. They keep talking about $750, which I think is a filing fee. But let me just tell you, I prepaid millions and millions of dollars in taxes. One of the many reasons Trump needs to win re-election, beyond his dangerous autocratic bluster, love of power, and insatiable ego, is the legal reckoning that awaits him the moment he vacates the West Wing abdicating his executive privilege. Those chants of lock him up might very well ring true for the Donald and his sons come January 22nd. Right now, as I speak to you, Donald Trump, his sons, and the entire Trump organization are under investigation from no less than three different legal entities, beginning with the Southern District of New York, as well as the New York AG's office and the New York City District Attorney. They're all looking into the financial workings of the Trump Organization. Prosecutors have suggested in court filings that the investigation could examine whether the president and his company engaged in bank fraud, money laundering, insurance fraud, criminal tax fraud, and falsification of business records. 
In the course of that probe, Trump has challenged a subpoena to his accounting firm for eight years of tax returns and financial records. Five courts have ruled the subpoena is valid. New York prosecutors have said the tax records, working papers, and documentation around business transactions are crucial to their investigation, which has been underway for more than a year. These guys have built an entire wing dedicated to putting Donald Trump in prison and have staffed it with absolute stone-cold legal killers and bad motherfuckers intent on bringing Trump to justice once and for all. And while there are legal questions as to whether a state prosecutor can file charges against a sitting president, once he leaves office, you better believe those subpoenas will begin to fly. On a state level, Governor Andrew Cuomo won't rest until Trump is wearing an orange jumpsuit. He holds Trump personally responsible for all the death and despair reaped upon New York due to Trump's complete and total negligence. Do you hear that point? We lose more people per day to COVID than any nation on the globe. You know who did that? Donald Trump's incompetence. Trump is actively trying to kill New York City. On top of that, the animus between Trump and Cuomo goes back literally decades to when Cuomo's father, Mario, was just a New York City councilman representing Queens, the same borough Fred Trump prevented black folks from renting his apartments. Their rise, in very different worlds and circumstances, is still very much a New York saga, reminiscent of The Godfather. My father taught me many things here. He taught me in this room. He taught me, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Trump alludes to this every time he tweets about Chris Cuomo, who he refers to as Fredo, in reference to the weak-willed and dim-witted Corleone brother. But this is a proper feud, layer with family honor, revenge, jealousy, ego, and New York, tabloid politics. For most of their history, Trump has skated untouched and perhaps can claim the upper hand as he, and not Andrew Cuomo, sits in the White House. Since the pandemic, though, the tables have largely turned. If anyone watched Cuomo's daily COVID briefings last spring, they were absolutely sensational, appointment viewing. Obviously, he brought a sense of calm and comfort during a dark and traumatic time. But the attention he was getting was driving Donald Trump absolutely insane and Cuomo took every opportunity to twist the knife. Buck stops on his desk, and it's what came out of his mouth. He denied the reality of the virus. Well, you know what, Mr. President? Reality wins. Every time. You don't defeat reality. Denying reality does not defeat reality. And he has lived in denial. And he has been denying the scientific facts from day one. He denied it all. All of this is to say that Cuomo is not going to rest until Trump is wearing the bracelets. If Chris Cuomo is Fredo, then Andrew is a combination of Michael and Sonny, possessing both the sharp intelligence and willingness to go to the mattress that defined the two brothers. Trump is fucked in New York. Right now, Cuomo's Attorney General, Letitia James, no shrinking violet herself, is sharpening her knife with an investigation into the Trump Organization and whether it improperly inflated the value of certain assets in some instances and lowered them in others, all in an effort to secure loans and obtain economic and tax benefits. 
And what guides me and my principles is I believe in equality, and I believe that the law should apply to all of us and that no one is above the law. And I also believe that as the Attorney General of the great state of New York, that I cannot sit idly by and allow someone to basically subvert the United States Constitution or the Constitution of the great state of New York. Investigators are looking into the tax breaks taken at the Trump Seven Springs property in Bedford, New York, and the Trump National Golf Club in Los Angeles. They're also investigating the valuation of a Trump office tower on Wall Street and the forgiveness of more than 100 million loan on the Trump International Hotel and Tower in Chicago. Trump's son, Eric, as much a model for Fredo Corleone as anyone, was deposed by investigators just last week. Comply with the court's order and submit financial records related to our investigation. Further, as the court ordered, Eric Trump will no longer be able to delay his interview and will be sitting down with investigators and lawyers in my office no later than October 7th. The court's order today makes clear that no one is above the law, not even an organization or an individual with the name Trump. Oh baby, I cannot wait for this to begin. That's just what's coming from the state and city of New York. Remember, once Trump's executive privilege is removed, he loses the deference normally afforded to sitting presidents, turning on the fucking fire hose for lawsuits and subpoenas from every city and state jurisdiction that he conducted business. Last week on this show, James Carville predicted that every prosecutor, DA, and attorney general looking to make a name for themselves is gonna come out to pick Trump's bones. They're gonna squeeze their ass like, only you could know what they're getting ready to do. And they're coming, and, and it's not just it's not just the federal government. It's every local entity that is. Everybody, every prosecutor in the country that wants to make his make his name knows the quickest way to do it. If it we can't imagine the legal jeopardy that these people are in. Some of this has already started. In 2017, the Washington, D.C. and Maryland Attorney General's Office sued the president for corruptly profiting off the presidency violating both the Emoluments Clause and state law barring such activity. State investigators have prepared more than 30 subpoenas and are waiting to file. Earlier this morning, the state of Maryland and the District of Columbia filed a lawsuit in federal court against the President of the United States. The suit alleges that President Trump is flagrantly violating the Constitution, which explicitly bars presidents from receiving gifts, or inducements from foreign or domestic government entities. Then there's the massive tax liabilities Trump faces from the IRS, as revealed in the New York Times expose about his finances. Nearly a decade ago, he claimed a $72 million tax credit, which has long been investigated but has stalled while Trump is president. While it will be up to the Biden administration to pursue, there will be pressure from many sides for Trump to face the consequences of his actions, which means he could still face serious jeopardy for two potentially more serious crimes. The first being the charge from Robert Mueller that found evidence that Trump had committed obstruction of justice, but didn't charge him, and the other was what landed me in fucking prison. Trump directing the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. The SDNY never charged the president, abiding by the Office of Legal Counsel memo, which shields a sitting president from indictment. And guess what? In two weeks, all that will be gone, 
and Trump may very well have to face the music for being individual one. Striking detail here is that federal prosecutors, as I mentioned, in the Southern District do bring up Donald Trump in these new filings tonight. They say Michael Cohen not only made illegal payments, we've heard about that, but they say in court he made them, quote, in coordination and at the direction of individual one. That is... Donald Trump. The seriousness of these charges is fueling Trump's relentlessness, scorched earth campaign. For he knows that his loss spells not just the end of his terrible reign of power, but his freedom as well. I truly fucking hope that this man ends up in prison. It won't bring back the year that I lost or the damage done to my family, but revenge is a dish best served cold. And you better believe I want this man to go down and rot inside for what he did to me and my family. So I decided to reach out to the absolute dean of Trump financial reporters, Dan Alexander. His new book, White House Inc., is a reporting tour de force. With the exception of the New York Times, no one has done the work that Alexander has done, investigating the octopus that is the Trump Organization. In plain language, he shows where the money flows and to whom and proves, without a doubt, the obscene level of corruption and criminality within the Trump administration. There's an age-old saying when looking at any target that the best place to start is to follow the money. Just follow the money. Well, Alexander has done far more than that. Let's listen now to that conversation. Dan, thanks so much for coming and joining us on this week's Mea Culpa. I want to jump right into this and ask you the following questions. The Trump Organization is currently under investigation from the SDNY, the New York Attorney General, as well as the New York City District Attorney for a variety of potential financial crimes. Eric Trump was recently deposed, and it appears as if Trump's history of inflating and deflating the valuation of his businesses to obtain loans and avoid the paying of taxes will cause him continued trouble. Knowing what you do about these various investigations, which one do you believe is the most likely to lead to Trump being indicted? Ooh, that's a tough question. He, you know, he's in a hairy situation here. And I think with the valuation of the asset stuff, it's particularly interesting to me for, for personal reasons, because, of course, uh, we at Forbes have been on the receiving end of Trump's inflating of assets for years. But it's a different thing when you lie and mislead to a magazine than when you lie and mislead to your bankers or to other financial institutions. Uh, so I do think that he's in trouble there. Although, as you know, as well as anyone, valuation is something that's kind of easy to fudge. So it has to be so egregious that they would, uh, which of course in Trump's case it is, but it, anyways, it's, it's trickier there. Um, I, I don't know. I, he, they're all serious. And I think we'll, you know, have a clear idea as we start getting more filings right now. The truth is, is that on a lot of these issues. There's not all that much information out. We know roughly what the contours of the investigations are. Frankly, you probably know some of this stuff better than most people. (laughs) Um, So let me do this. Let me take you to an area that you are the expert in, because as you know, (laughs) I I had been along with Alan Weisselberg, the CFO, and a couple of other people uh, in the Trump Trump orbit. We were tasked with trying to prove to Forbes that Donald Trump's net worth was substantially greater than the number that you have recently put out in the most recent Forbes um, of course. 500. 
The New York Attorney General's case is all about the inflation and the deflation of his assets and the benefits mm -hmm. that he derived from it, whereas the DA's office are looking to get copies of his tax returns. for So they're mm -hmm. not exactly the same types of crimes. But let's right. just stick with the um, inflation and the deflation of the values of both his properties as well as his businesses. Mm -hmm. You pegged that number at how much? So we pegged his total assets at $3.66 billion, his total debt at $1.1 billion, and his net worth at $2.5 billion. I think that one of the interesting things when you see some of the papers coming out in the New York Attorney General's investigation is you start to look at what properties are they focusing on. And one of the properties that they're focusing on is Seven Springs. And you know we have documents uh, and have been speaking with, obviously, you and Alan and other people at the, at the Trump Organization for years about all these assets. The one that always seemed the craziest of all of them was Seven Springs. I mean, you know, the Trump Organization was saying that Seven Springs was worth 200 and something million dollars. I think they said 270, and if I'm not mistaken, but I that sounds about right. And, and uh, there are tricky math equations that you've laid out before Congress, where you can try to make things look more valuable than they actually are by, you know, saying, oh, well, if you split it up and you do all this and you make all these McMansions and they all sell off perfectly, then it's going to be, you know, worth X amount of dollars. But if you talk to anybody who actually buys and sells this stuff, which is the way that we go about valuing the assets, you talk to the brokers who buy and sell, you know, estates and mansions in Westchester County and in that area, no one would say anything approaching not just $270 million, but $200 million or $100 million. I mean, the highest number I've ever heard on that asset is like $50 million. And the, the more realistic number is like $30 million. And so to get from $30 million to nine times that, uh, you know, that's not just a matter of sort of fancy accounting. That's where you get to this level of egregiousness uh, where you know, they, they might actually be compromised. Well, is that the most egregious real estate inflation of value that you've seen in the Trump portfolio? What about, for example, his triplex on Fifth Avenue? Well, the triplex was just a blatant lie. And so the triplex, you know, the story here is that Trump, <laughs> uh, you know, would say that the triplex was, you know, 33,000 square feet plus the roof. So really, it's like 40,000 square feet or something like that. And, you know, when you actually go back and he fooled us on it and he fooled a lot of people on it. And when you actually go back and you look at the documents and how many square feet are in that property, it's slightly under 11,000 square feet. And so Trump is saying not only should my square footage, should my price per square foot be way higher, but also the number of square feet is unrealistic. And that was one that after Trump becomes president, when we're taking a closer examination at some of this stuff, credit to one of my colleagues, this guy, Chase Peterson Withorn, goes back and looks in the document and he's shaking his head. He's like, he's been lying to us about the size of his penthouse for years. And so he redid the math. It dropped it from, we had it at $100 million. Now we got it at $45 million. So that one's egregious, but it's a multiple. You know, that's nowhere close to Seven Springs. I mean, Seven Springs is just nuts. You know, there's also the Los Angeles golf course, you know, crazy numbers on that one. Uh, but that one is a little bit more, you know, it's a little bit more complex because there's a lot of, there's a lot of residential real estate 
And the residential real estate is worth something, even if the golf course isn't. That's correct. So that one's, and they've sold off that real estate for real money. So That's right. And I was actually involved in one of the land transactions where we sold a parcel for just about $5 million. Yeah. And he's got about a hundred of those parcels. So, you know, is it, which brings me to my next question I wanted to ask you. Sure. You recently tweeted, since Trump holds his business empire through a web of shell companies, the loophole allows him to avoid disclosing much about who is actually paying him. He doesn't have to disclose tenants in his buildings, nor guests at his hotels, nor members of his clubs. What to you in your investigation stands out as the most troubling of these payees? Well, again, you know, my starting point is always what the numbers are. So if you look at what the numbers are, the most important part of Donald Trump's business is the commercial real estate. You know, people focus on the licensing deals and the golf and all that stuff. The place where the profits actually come from, not just the revenue. The golf churns a lot of revenue, but doesn't make a lot of money. The place where the profits actually come from is the commercial real estate. And not only that, but the amount of money that tenants pay in the buildings, because there are fewer tenants, is substantially higher than, for example, somebody who belongs to one of Trump's golf clubs. And so for the, for the book that I did, you know, I went through and tracked who all of these people are and you know, counted up more than 150 tenants who together put $177 million of rent into the president's empire each year. And if you start looking at then what the makeup of those people are, the web of potential conflicts is pretty dizzying. You know, so you've got four foreign government entities renting space in Trump buildings while he's serving as president. Well, walk me through that. Yeah, sure. 17 tenants that are under federal investigation, at least 17, while they're paying the president of the United States rent. You have at least 30 companies that are collecting federal government contracts that total over $8 billion while they're paying the president of the United States rent. You have at least 35 companies that are lobbying the federal government while paying the president rent. And at least 20 of those are lobbying either Trump personally or the White House. And so if you look at that assortment of people and you know that that's where the money actually comes from, and I don't think that there's anything in the portfolio that's uh, more of a potential problem than that. Well, I want you then to walk me through the Qatari situation sure. in which the government of Qatar is likely using a dummy office to funnel payments to the president. Because you write about this recently in a Vanity Fair article saying it was one of the most significant potential conflicts of interest in American history. What is it about that deal that remains so troubling to you? And what are the implications for Donald Trump, both as president and then after being president? Sure. So, you know, the Trump organization, again, as you well know, at the start of the presidency, their position was that Trump is not violating the Emoluments Clause. And the reason that he's not violating the Emoluments Clause, which is part of the Constitution that bans foreign governments from paying U.S. officials. And their explanation was that the reason that he's not violating the Emoluments Clause by taking foreign money in through his businesses because these are standard business transactions. You know, so, okay, you know, some royal stays at the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. Well, it's normal business. They get 
a hotel room and maybe they buy a burger or whatever, they get food. You know, you get something in exchange for it. That explanation, which was sort of the central defense of Trump's team, falls apart with the Qatari deal. Because not only does it begin while Trump is in office, but if you go to the actual space, as I did, it's totally empty. There's no one there. There's a dead plant on the reception desk. There's totally empty office buildings. There's furniture that looks like nobody's ever sat on it. The list of tenants at the bottom of the building doesn't list the Qatar Investment Authority, even though their office is upstairs. The Qatar Investment Authority's website doesn't list any office in 555 California Street, even though there's an office there. And so you start to wonder, why is it that the Qatar Investment Authority, Jax is an arm of the Qatari government, is paying for an office space that doesn't seem to have any business purpose. And then you start looking at US foreign policy toward Qatar, and you see a clear switch. At the beginning of the presidency, Donald Trump is accusing the Qataris of funding terrorists. The Qataris then, sometime after February of 2018, move into 555 California Street. And after that, Trump has the Qataris back to the Oval Office. And he then takes the exact opposite position and says, uh, you know, I want to commend you for fighting against terrorism funding. And so we don't, we can't get inside of his head and know what exactly caused that switch. And there are potential other reasons. I mean, Qataris are lobbying a lot in Washington over that time. Perhaps Donald Trump just got more familiar with U.S. policy toward the Middle East. But the whole reason that people are fearful of foreign governments paying the president or of any conflicts of interest at all that involve the president is because it makes you wonder whether he's acting in his personal interests or whether the country's interests. And with most presidents, we don't have to wonder because they get rid of their businesses. By hanging on to his, Trump sort of opened up the door for people to pay him. And the amount of access points is incredible. And the Qataris look like they found one. Right, but you talk about the emoluments close. I think there's another aspect to this that needs to be um, reviewed here. The nepotism laws mm-hmm. that, we, that we have in this country as well. Now, don't forget that you have, as senior advisor to the president, you have Jared Kushner. Mm-hmm. How do you think that this then connects to the bailing out of the Kushner family's debacle at 666 Fifth Avenue from a Qatari sovereign wealth fund? If you have the, either of these stories separately, it's enough to raise eyebrows. If you have them together, then it raises eyebrows a little bit higher. I will say that the uh, Qatari deal involving 666 Fifth Avenue, it's not quite as simple as I think a lot of people imagine it. It's not like the Qataris went in and bought the building. You know, the Qataris were an investor in a fund, and that fund uh, went in and invested in the building. And they weren't the majority investors, so it's not, it's not super clear in that case that this is the Qataris straight up bailing out Kushner. Well, my understanding is that nobody wanted to touch that building. It's been a dog since the day that Jared actually acquired it. It, it is known in New York real estate world as the single worst real estate acquisition. <laughs> yeah, that's right. In New York, in New York history. But, but it's not. That's right. That's right. But it's not that no one wanted to touch it because Brookfield Asset Management bought it. So there were people who were interested in, in touching it. They bought it for $1.3 billion. 
and they're not the guitars. So it wasn't, all I'm saying is that it's a little bit more complicated in that situation. If you look at 555 California Street, it's a much more simple transaction. This is the Qatar Investment Authority renting in Donald Trump's most valuable building. Well, you recently also stated that some of Trump's troubles are independent of politics and that he chose to hold on to a poorly positioned set of assets, including retail spaces when shoppers were increasingly going online and office space when businesses were about to start questioning the size of their leases. Talk to me about this in more detail, if you would. Well, you know, any business uh, person at the top of the company has to think about strategy and has to think about where their assets are positioned. And, you know, this is as true for a retail investor deciding which stocks to pick as it is for somebody sitting on a multi-billion dollar fortune. And so if you're in Donald Trump's position and you hold a bunch of aging real estate assets, you know, one option is to sell them and to say, I'm going to diversify my portfolio. You know, in fact, this is what ethics experts said you should do at the start, you know, sell everything, stick it into the S&P 500, and then you won't be conflicted when you're in office. But instead, he wanted to hang on to all this stuff that he'd spent so many years building. And by hanging on to all this stuff, he didn't realize it at the time, but he was making a poor strategic decision. It's very difficult to predict the coronavirus, of course, but it's not that hard to predict that if you have everything concentrated in a few different types of assets, hotels, commercial real estate, and golf, that if those things go one way and the rest of the economy is going another way, you're going to fall behind. Donald Trump doesn't have much exposure, for example, to technology other than his investment in 555 California Street, which is a skyscraper in San Francisco, which is the best performing thing in his entire portfolio. I want you to explain to the listeners how he's even involved <laughs> in 555 California. Well, not by his own choosing. So, you know, he owned land on the west side of Manhattan and he wanted to build something called Television City over there, which is sort of this grand plan to build all these different skyscrapers. And he ends up partnering up with some Hong Kong investors. And the Hong Kong investors eventually say, this is crazy. We don't want to do it in Television City. It's pie in the sky. We want to get rid of this land and we want to buy an investment in two office buildings, 555 California Street and 1290 Avenue in the Americas. And Trump says, no, this is a terrible idea because buildings are garbage and my plan is immaculate and we're going to make tons of money. And so he takes him to court and he even gets Tom Barrick to say, you know, I would have paid Trump more money than, uh, than you guys are, are getting for these office buildings, that the valuations were messed up. And so, but Trump ends up losing because he's only a 30% partner. So he doesn't actually have control. So he gets dragged into these two office buildings. And as it turns out, those two office buildings end up being the best deals of his entire life. The best deals? Yeah, there's, there's no, they're better than Trump Tower. They're better than 40 Wall Street. They're the best deals he's ever done. You know, I found your tweet to be um, quite ironic, the one that we were just speaking about, that Trump has indeed lost a fortune as president. And one of the greatest ironies is that if he had just divested at the start, which he was required really to do that every other president had done, and then plowed all the proceeds back into the S&P 500, that Trump would have avoided all of these ethic complications, all of these issues. Not to mention, he would be hundreds of millions of dollars richer today than he currently is. Yeah, you know, at the time that Trump decided to hang on to his assets, I think that most people had an idea that this was a, a thing that could be difficult politically. 
you know, that politically this is going to cause conflicts and a bunch of, of questions and all that sort of stuff. But people didn't know what it was going to be from a business perspective. Was he going to be able to leverage the presidency to make more money? Was this going to uh, elevate his brand and therefore he would become richer? And what we found over the last couple of years is the results of this experiment that he launched unfolding before our eyes. And you can see it in the numbers in the properties. Profitability at Doral plummeting. The value of his condos and various buildings, including Trump Park Avenue, decreasing. And you add all of that up, and then you look at what the stock market's done, which he likes to talk about all the time. And you look at what his fortune's done, which is decreasing. And the stock market shot up, and then it took a big dive. But now it's back up way above where when he, before he took office. And if he had just gotten rid of everything and stuck it in there, he would have avoided all the political complications, but he also would have avoided all the business troubles. It proved to be a bad both political decision and a bad business decision. Well, don't forget, for so many years, all we concentrated on was inflating the value of these assets. Mm -hmm. So we would take a piece of commercial property. I've told this story on the podcast before, but I think it's important since <laughs> you're with the paper that we were trying to pull. I, I can't wait. I can't wait to. We were trying to, to pull the wool over. <laughs> so, so we've gotten better. So at Alan it. Weisselberg would have the year prior's document, which would show that Trump is worth six billion dollars. And Alan, myself, and Trump would sit in his office, and Trump would just arbitrarily turn and said, "No, no, Alan, I'm worth more than that. I'm not worth six. He goes, "I'm worth eight. Okay." So Alan would look at me, I would look at him, right? And we'd both then look at Trump and he would be, go back and figure out because the properties have all gone up in value based upon the current real estate market here in New York. I'm worth at least $8 billion. I'm probably worth nine. Let's make it nine. So within a matter of 30 seconds, the guy increased his net worth, not, not from... 6 billion to 8 billion, but now 6 billion to 9 billion. So we go back to the office and now we have a real project on our hands. <laughs> How do we turn around and try to justify to people like yourself the fact that your valuation, for example, of the Gucci building, which he used to like to talk about, is worth a billion dollars in and of itself? <laughs> and we needed to figure out how to rationalize it. And the way that he came up originally in saying that just the Gucci building alone is worth a billion dollars, is that we looked over at the building that's two blocks the over. Crown building. The St. Regis. The St. Regis property oh, okay. that I believe um, Vornado purchased for like $700 million. But you're not comparing apples to apples here. One is, <laughs> one is like 24,000 square feet, all Fifth Avenue prime retail. The other is 48,000 square feet on five levels. Right. Right. So it's obviously very different in terms of value. But no, no. If you take the dollar per square foot over at the St. Regis property and you multiply it times Trump's. Yeah, there goes an extra billion dollars. And we felt very <laughs> legitimized in providing to you these sort of numbers. Now, one time it did come up where Alan turned around and said, you know, to Donald, we got you really need to be very careful about this because you could really get killed in terms of taxes, but not so much you while you're alive. If God forbid you died, 
the estate would be valued at this $9 billion number. And we don't have either the cash flow or the liquidity within which to pay the tax on it. We'd be we we would have to sell virtually everything just to cover the estate tax. To which he said, "I don't care." What was his response? I don't care. He <laughs> goes, "It's not. It won't be my problem. Somebody else's It'll problem. It'll be the kid's problem, right? So so they'll end up inheriting a little less." I'm just going to jump in. One of the remarkable things, you know, before I was covering Trump and doing his fortune, I was working on the rest of the list. And one of the remarkable things about Trump's fortune is the fact that here you've got a guy who's in his mid seventies who has not passed down the fortune to the kids. It's, we, you know, look at hundreds of billionaires across the United States. This is not a normal way to operate. If you are that rich, you pass down as much as you possibly can, as early as you possibly can, so that then the kids don't get stuck with this huge estate tax bill. But Trump has just kept on to all of it. And if he does pass away, while these assets are still in his hands, and Ivanka and Don Jr., and they are going to face some stiff, stiff penalties. Yeah, and he doesn't care either. As he said, <laughs> I, I won't be here, so it's not my problem. Now, you recently <laughs> tweeted about how impressed you were with the New York Times piece on the swamp that Trump built. What was it with that piece that made you so impressed? And how has the way Trump structured his business made it difficult to see how wrapped in conflict that he actually is as the president. So one of the major loopholes with federal disclosure laws is that you have to disclose the companies that are paying you, but you don't have to disclose who in turn is paying those companies. So if you are you know, a salaried employee, okay, that's fine. The company that's paying you is going to be your employer. But if you are a real estate tycoon who holds a business through hundreds of different shell companies, then by disclosing just the shell companies, you're not listing who's paying you rent or who's paying your property or who's joining your golf clubs or any of the numbers about where that money is actually originating. So we don't know those things. And, you know, I've done a lot of work figuring out the commercial real estate tenants and different other assets have gotten a lot of scrutiny. For example, the Trump International Hotel, there's a guy named Zach Everson, who's fantastic, who basically just scrolls around Instagram all day long. And if you ever show up in the Trump International Hotel, he will know about it within uh, 24 hours and will have it in his log. And so he knows everyone who's, who's taken photos in there. And so we've got a good idea of you know, who's paying there. But one of the things that's been most challenging is figuring out who's paying at the golf clubs. Those membership lists are not public. And there haven't been a lot of people who've gotten their hands on them. The Times got their hands on two of the club membership lists. One was from Mar-a-Lago and one was from Trump Bedminster, his golf club in New Jersey. And those two lists show a litany of people who have interest before the federal government. But what's really amazing to think about is that that's only two of the 11 clubs that he owns in the United States. And I'm not even counting Ferry Point, which is, you know, it's a public course, so there's not. But, you know, that's, there are nine other courses where we don't have the club membership lists to know who all is joining those clubs or hanging around those clubs in hopes of being near the president. And that information is really, really difficult to get. And a lot of the reporting, frankly, just requires scrolling through social media. And that's super tedious, very, very boring. And so if you look at the byline on that story, I mean, I think they had eight bylines on top, nine on the bottom. There are newsrooms that don't have 17 people in the whole newsroom. 
it just took a tremendous amount of work. And it was the first time that somebody has really been able to break through and show a lot of those relationships at the club level. The same ones that we have been able to see in the hotels and that we've been able to see in the commercial properties, but hadn't gotten a ton of exposure to at the club level. It, it was an unraveling of a mystery that I've been wondering about for a long time. But there still is a lot that's buried in there that I'd love to get my hands on. You know, what's amazing, though, is that, as you said, the clubs actually lose money. I remember when the Doral first opened, it was making about $15 million a year. Then in 2015, um, I'm sorry, 20, uh, yeah, 15, 2016, when he made the announcement that he was going to be running for president, the infamous, um, you know, Mexicans are drug addicts, rapists, murderers, but some are fine people. Univision, which is directly adjacent to it, they actually had some Trump um, golf carts and they would just use it on a regular basis. They held all their functions there because it's a very large ballroom and so on. They all dropped out and they all stopped using the facility. Well, how could they not? I mean, the man makes his opening statement is a racist statement. And now you want Univision, which caters, of course, to the Hispanic community to to show up, to be there. Well, no, you're not going to get that. And then all of a sudden they started losing it. I'll never forget. I had Don Ivankanera came to my office thereafter and said, you got to go speak to dad and you got to get him to stop this run because we're going to be out of business. And eventually what's going to happen is you'll become the CEO of the company, but we're going to change the name from the Trump org to the rump org. And they wanted him out of this because this was around 2016, you know, right towards the beginning of the campaign. Everybody started bailing out. People were like their uh, weddings, christenings, bar mitzvahs, you know, uh, office functions. They were all bailing out because some of the guests didn't want to go. They were so offended. Well, and you can see it in the financials. I mean, you know, I, we've looked at the same reports, just getting them through different ways. You know, I mean, that those Doral numbers, it drops from 15 to, as you said, in, in 2015, it drops to 13. In 2016, it drops to 12. 2017, his first year in the, in the Oval Office, the profitability of Doral hits $4.3 million. All of a sudden, they're in danger of not being able to cover the interest expense. Well, how are they covering the interest expense? I mean, I know that there's over, what is there, $150 million loan on that property? Well, there's there's two mortgages that add up to $125 million. Now, this is something, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but I, something that I'm curious about. The New York Times reports that the balance on those loans is $148 million. So I don't know if there's some accruing interest that they're not paying or what exactly explains that. The New York Times also in other places just referred to it as 125 million. So it was just kind of a, a question that I had as I was reading the stories. But the, the mortgage documents that you can see, there's one for 106 million and another one for 19 million dollars, add up to 125 million dollars. There may have been some line of credit that they were using for a construction loan or some, you know, um, HELOC type of a of a product. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that would make some sense. And I know that they would, you know, on the DC hotels, they were building that one out the balance on that was bouncing all over the place too. So it could have been something like that. Cause of course they were doing a ton of construction at Doral. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the interest rates low there. Um, and in those early years in 15, as it was starting to decline, the operating income still would have been enough to cover it in 17. It starts to get very close. Now in 18, uh, the Trump organization claims that their net operating income is $9.7 million. So not up to the 
level that it had been, but better than it was in 2017. If that's true, uh, then they would presumably have enough to cover the interest. Of course, there's a lot of other things that come out after operating income that they might not be able to afford in addition. Uh, the place where I think that they really can't afford the interest is the DC hotel. Well, let's talk about the DC hotel for a quick second. Mm -hmm. They were able to obtain the old post office, the DC hotel through the GSA. Mm -hmm. And the way that they were able to get it from the government was by showing their financials. And I remember Mr. Trump bragging to everybody that we beat the Pritzkers. We beat everybody. Because we have the strongest financials. We have the greatest cash flow. We have the most amount of liquidity. I have tremendous assets. Did you look at the financials at the cent? I never saw the financials. Um, those mm-hmm. That was being handled internally by Ivanka with Alan Weisberg. Right. And with um, Weiser Mazer, the accounting firm. Right. But I'm curious if, in fact, that it's determined that his tax returns and his financials are significantly skewed. Mm -hmm. What happens to that agreement? Didn't they then obtain the property based upon fraud? Well, and the other thing that you wonder about too is that uh, when you're speaking to federal officials, uh, and if you say something that's false, uh, you know, I don't have to tell you. No, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) that, That... that you can, that's a crime. So I don't know now in a financial application whether those same uh, rules would apply as they would in a congressional hearing it or does. an ethics report. It does. Actually, at the bottom it of does. each of those documents, it says, you know, misrepresentation is a, you know, is a crime. And, and I'd be fascinated to know, too, you know, and the balance sheet that they went in on that, you know, I mean, they committed to spend $200 million and they got a $170 million mortgage from Deutsche Bank. So it's not like, they were coming in and throwing in, you know, I mean, even if you're buying a house, usually you're buying a house at, you know, 20%, you're putting down, they weren't putting down 20% on, you know, on that, on that investment. So it wasn't like, you know, oh, they came in with this terrific balance sheet. They came in with a large Deutsche Bank loan and threw in $30 million of their own. And, and ultimately they overspent. I mean, the, the performance of the property isn't justifying what they spent and they're, you know, they're bleeding money because of it. Yeah. Well, in looking at your piece today in Forbes, you state Trump will have 900 million of loans coming due in his second term if he's reelected. And knowing what I know about how Trump uses those disclosure forms, isn't that 900 million then much higher because he really hasn't accurately disclosed the real value? Well, the the numbers that we're pulling from on that amount of debt is not just from his disclosure form. So, you know, if you, if you go through the loans, you know, there's $950 million against 1290 Avenue of the Americas. Vornado discloses that in its public financial statements. Trump owns 30% of that. The amount attributable to him is $285 million. The 555 California Street loan, $543 million. Trump owns 30%. So the amount attributable to him is $162 million. So that's not relying on Trump's honesty for those numbers. That's relying on Vornado, which is a publicly traded company, disclosing information to its investors. In other instances, like for example, the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C., you know, that's from the recorded mortgage filed with local authorities. You can see it says $170 million on the document. Again, not from the disclosure. If you look in Trump Doral, 
those are two mortgages, one for $109 million, one for $16 million, add up to $125 million filed with, with local officials. So trust me, we're not, uh, we're not foolish enough to take Trump's word on the value of his assets, nor the value of his liabilities. Well, a lot of people uh, did. And in that case, we're a not. A lot of people did. But, <laughs> but, based on, but based on that question, yeah. I'd like to just take for a second a more thorough look at one of his more, we'll call it minor properties, 40 Wall Street, yeah. to break down the numbers in more detail to see how the numbers just don't add up for Trump. Yeah. So, you know, Trump in that building, uh, we value the building using two methods. The first is, so first of all, anytime that we're valuing any real estate, we call up a bunch of people who buy and sell real estate, that type of real estate all day long, all year long. So in the case of the New York City properties, we call eight New York City real estate brokers and we ask them, all right, so this particular property, and by now, these guys are all familiar with Trump's properties because we go through it with them so many times every year. And so I say, all right, so 40 Wall Street, he does not own the land. He has a lease on the building. Uh, what do you think that the price per square foot of a building like that would be? And they offer various different numbers. And we, it comes in as sort of a range. And then we average those together. And then we take the number of square feet in the building, which he's disclosed to his lenders on the lending prospectus is 1.165 million square feet in that particular building. And we multiply that by the price per square foot. Then we go to the method that you described before Congress, where you're looking at the net operating income of the building. And Trump, as you know, he has CMBS debt, commercial mortgage-backed securities debt on that building. And so we can tell what his net operating income is because it's filed against those loans. It's filed as part of those documents. So for instance, in 2019, net operating income at 40 Wall Street was $18.1 million. Same exercise, call up all the people who buy and sell New York City real estate all day long and you say, what are the cap rates for this sort of property? And they give you a range of numbers. You then average all of those together and you take that cap rate and you apply it to the net operating income. Those two numbers are going to come out slightly divergent. The, the you know, price per square foot thing will be one. The cap rate approach will be another. And then we, again, average them together. Right now, we've got that building valued at $401 million. And he's got $138 million in debt on it. So that gets you your net value of what his equity and what the, the line that we put into his net worth is ultimately. But you do know that while it's one point, it should say shy of 1.2 million square feet to make numbers easy. Do you know that there's a real significant portion of the building that's uninhabitable? I mean, everything from the lower levels down where there used to be safes and so on. I mean, safes that you walk into rooms that are three, three and a half, four thousand square feet. I mean, massive, massive rooms. Right. All those lower areas, which do constitute part of this 1.2 million square feet, are uninhabitable and there there's no income derived from it. Do you take that into consideration too? Well, sure, because it, it's reflected in the net operating income. So if you can't make any money from it, then it's, it's not going to show up in your net operating income and therefore your valuation is going to be lower. And this is the importance of looking at multiple approaches for each building. I'll give you kind of a reverse example here. So in Trump Tower, you know, the net, net operating income is only $13.1 million in 2019, which is very low for how it's historically done. And 
but the net operating income in Trump Tower uh, can't capture the fact that the Trump organization is occupying a significant amount of space and not paying any rent on that space. And so if you were to just value Trump Tower on the net operating income, then you wouldn't be giving Trump fair credit for space that actually is worth something, but just that he's not getting any money from. And so in certain buildings, the net operating income makes more sense. In other buildings, the price per square foot makes more sense. And ultimately what we try to do is factor in all of the things that we can. In fact, in some of these buildings, we actually weight it because we believe that one of the methods makes more sense than the other. But we wanna take all the approaches that we can to triangulate on what that final number is. I, I want to just touch also in that New York Times series was an article about a relationship that Trump has with the casino magnate, Phil Ruffin, um, who happens to also, as you know, be a partner, 50-50 partner with Trump International Hotel in Tower Las Vegas, as well as the provenance of this $21 million windfall, which flowed directly from the hotel into the Trump campaign at a moment when he was facing a cash crunch. So if you can, walk me through Trump's relationship to Phil Ruffin and how unusual and potentially illegal was that $21 million payment. Yeah, well, first of all, let me, let me ask you, did you ever, when you were in there, do you remember them talking about, hey, you know, we need to extract some cash from one of the properties in order to put money into the campaign? No, no. It's, it's interesting because, you know, they, they talk about, like the Times has done some reporting on how Deutsche Bank refused to do a loan, I think against one of the Scottish properties. Um, and there were several refinancings that went on during the campaign, including actually 40 Wall Street, although it was only about two weeks into the campaign. I don't know how seriously uh, you know, everyone was taking it at that point. But the interesting one that sort of has flown under the radar uh, that we previously reported on before this Times one is that just shortly before the 2016 election actually happens, uh, Trump and Phil Ruffin, who, as you said, is a billionaire out in Las Vegas, who's good friends with Trump, they take out a $30 million loan against the Trump International Hotel in Las Vegas. One of the interesting things about that is uh, because he's a partner on it, it immediately makes you wonder, well, were they able to get that loan because they're not just relying on Trump's reputation, but also on Ruffin's? Um, and then shortly after they take out that loan, then you can see large amounts of money start flowing into the campaign. So Trump makes a $10 million donation, and he also makes a $2 million donation. Now, you look at those numbers, okay, it's a 50-50 partnership, they extract $30 million, and then all of a sudden $12 million, which is pretty close to half of the $30 million, goes into the campaign, it makes you wonder. Now, we don't know for sure, it didn't know for sure, but what the Times reporting did was it tied together more of these, uh, the way that the money flowed, and they still weren't able to fully pin it down but it does look like that's what happened. Like they took out that loan and then like that loan was then moved into Trump's empire and then Trump spent that money on the campaign. Now, your question about legality here. So one of the tricks is that, as you know, there are limitations on how much money somebody can donate to a presidential campaign. So you can donate uh, only $2,800 in the primaries and $2,800 in the general election, so $5,600 directly to the campaign, unless you're the candidate. That's right. That's right. And so Trump himself put $66 million of his own into the 2016 campaign 
none into his reelection, which is a separate story. Um, but so, so, but Ruffin is not able to put into the campaign more than $5,600. And so if Ruffin really was the one who secured that loan, and if they knew that that money was going into the campaign, then it starts to look like a campaign donation. And it starts to look like an illegally large campaign donation. So that's an interesting thing, but it's one of those situations where there's enough gray area in there uh, that I would be very surprised if he actually faces legal consequences for it, because it seems like they would have deniability on it. Like they would, and in fact, Ruffin has said publicly um, that, you know, I don't know what happened with the money. I mean, he just took it and put it in the campaign, you know, and unless they, you know, were sloppy enough to write it down or something like that, uh, then it would seem far-fetched that, that they'd be able to, to trace the motivation behind that. And the motivation would be key to, to proving that it was illegal. Yeah. What I've always found interesting, and you brought it up about Trump really only has two tranches within which to obtain capital. And one is Deutsche Bank, where I think um, it's been stated there's about $472 million. However, the only other institution mm-hmm. that seems to be interested in loaning Trump any money from your investigation is Ladder Capital. Now, what's interesting right. about Ladder right. Capital is that one of the people that works at Ladder Capital happens to be the son of Alan Weisselberg. So I just think that this whole unholy, nepotistic alliance, that there, there's something just odd that the only two institutions that are loaning this man money based upon maybe the knowledge that his personal financial statement is severely overinflated, that potentially his cash flow is overstated, who would look past these overstated amounts mm-hmm. would be Deutsche Bank for whatever reason that they that they overlook it. And then again, the son of the CFO. So I just find the whole thing to be very unholy. And it brings me right back to the whole topic that you brought up, um, which is the CEOs and the lobbyists all becoming members at the various different clubs in order to gain access. It's just this whole smorgasbord of things that just make you go, hmm. There's a, there's a lot of questions, you know, and, and again, it's, it's, it's important to emphasize that the whole point of ethics laws and of forcing people to sell things, and Trump did not legally have to sell things, which is why he didn't, but all of his predecessors had chosen to act like that law applied to them anyways to set an example for everybody else in the government. But the whole point of ethics laws is to make it so that then people don't have to wonder what is motivating uh, certain decisions that our leaders are making. And by hanging on to his business, uh, Trump left everyone with four years of wondering about this payment and that payment. And with $900 million of loans coming due, there are two ways to get out of that. One is to sell properties and the other is to refinance properties and probably to do a combination of the two. And that's a tremendous amount of money to work through in only four years. And you are going to have you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on the line in every one of these discussions. And you're going to be either talking to Wall Street banks that your administration is regulating or in many cases investigating, or you're going to be talking to investors who want to purchase things where people are going to wonder, well, are they purchasing that because they want to own the thing? 
Are they purchasing that because they want to get close to Trump or because they want to put a couple hundred million dollars in his pocket? And so we've seen a lot of conflicts the whole time, but the size of the ones coming. It doesn't make a difference, the size of the the graph as it relates to Trump. It doesn't matter if it's a dollar or a billion dollars. To him, it's just, it's the fact that it's going on. Because I actually, I laughed yeah. when you retweeted a pro-public piece yeah. about how Trump aides drank more than $1,000 in malt liquor at Mar-a-Lago <laughs> and then billed it to the taxpayers. Right. Now, while this is humorous and we'll both laugh about it, it also reveals the extent to which self-dealing is built into the day-to-day -day behavior of the Trump administration at large. So talk to me about this. One of the ones that I think is most telling is what Trump has done with his own campaign funds. So, you know, as you remember, in 2015, Trump comes on, I'm really rich. I'm going to pay for my whole campaign. I don't need the lobbyists. I don't need anybody's money. I'm going to pay for it. He ends up putting a lot of his money into the campaign initially, but then once he gets the nomination, then other people start putting in money and he is taking money from the big donors and all the people who he said he wasn't going to take money from. Then in 2017, he doesn't, or excuse me, in, two, in the 2020 election, he doesn't put in any of his own money. And yet his companies continue to charge the campaign for various little knickknacky expenses. You know, so they're charging him for things like, sure, there's the rent at Trump Tower and that sort of thing, but also like IT expenses, uh, legal expenses from Trump Corp, which is, you know, his management company. So why is Trump Corp providing IT services to a presidential campaign, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And the amount of money is, is nickel and dime. You know, it adds up total to $2.3 million that have gone now from Trump's donors, because Trump is not putting in his, his own money, from Trump's donors for his turn, his donors campaign money into revenue for the Trump organization. Dan, what you have to do is you have to remember that Trump doesn't care what anybody thinks. He doesn't <laughs> care about what's right or what's wrong, ethical or um, or in, uh, unethical. It doesn't matter to him. Well, well, fair enough. But he does care about politics, and he ca and he cares about how people perceive him. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you would think, and obviously, knowing what we know, we should not be foolish enough to think. But you would think that somebody who's worth two and a half billion dollars would say, okay, two point three million dollars. You know, I'll tell you what. So that then nobody thinks that I'm taking money from my own political supporters. I'm just going to donate an equivalent amount to the campaign. I'll donate two and a half million dollars. And then nobody can say that I was taking their money. But he hasn't done it. That's because he's not worth the $2.6 billion that <laughs> you have pegged. Because the, I bet that you'll find that when uh, Cy Vance or Tish James uh, end up with his tax returns, you're going to come up with a totally different number. But I did want to say, at some point, Trump and his team... They all suggested that he was going to give all the profits from foreign governments to the U.S. Treasury as a way of acknowledging the Constitution's emoluments clause. And I'm talking about from the various different hotels, the golf clubs, and so on. And now in your book, White House Inc., you explain not only did this not happen, but the money received from foreign governments was both staggeringly high and underreported. This was all supposed to be a part of an ethics plan where a so-called independent ethics advisor would review all new transactions to guard against potential conflicts of interest. Obviously, this never happened. I mean, what a shit shocker that Trump lied to the American people. Is that not correct? Yeah, the, the ethics plan that they laid out at the start just fell apart. You know, one part of it, then the next part of it, then the next part of it. 
you know, the promise that they were going to turn back the profits from foreign governments, it's just a math equation. You know, you look at the amount of money that the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, which is at least 70% owned by the government of China, paid to Trump Tower Commercial LLC, which is 100% owned by Donald Trump, they were paying about $1.9 million a year. If you just take the first two years, 2017 and 2018, and then you say, okay, the operating profits in Trump Tower were about 42%. We can see that on his debt documents. So if you multiply those numbers through and you say $3.8 million in total revenue, and then you multiply that by 0.42, so now you've got the operating profit, and then you compare that profit to the amount that the Trump organization actually turned over to the U.S. Treasury in those two years. And you are far, far higher on the money coming in from the Chinese, more than three times as much money coming in from the Chinese than what they're claiming is all of the profits from foreign governments across their properties. And we haven't even gotten to the Qataris in 555 California Street or to anybody coming into the Trump International Hotel or to any foreign people in, the, in his golf clubs or anything else. That's one deal. We can already prove that the numbers don't line up. But it's promise by promise that fell. You know, another one of the things that Trump said was, we're not, you know, I'm not going to talk about the business with my kids. My kids aren't going to talk about uh, it with me. I'm sitting in Trump Tower, you know, about a month afterward, after that press conference in 2017, across the desk from Eric Trump. And he just told me flat out, yeah, I'm planning on updating my father on the financials of the business, on the profitability of the business. So right there, fundamental promise falls apart. Then, as you mentioned, they said that they were going to review you know, all new transactions with, with an outside ethics advisor. Well, the problem with that is that they later admitted, Alan Garten, who you worked with in the legal department, later admitted to me that they were not reviewing any of the transactions that happened in 1290 Avenue in the Americas and 555 California Street, which is where Trump owns a minority interest, only 30%. So that might sound like, oh, well, it's minority interest, whatever. But again, remember, these are the two most valuable buildings in Trump's entire portfolio. And if you look at all of the commercial rent flowing into the Trump organization, about half of it comes via those two buildings, even if we're just counting the, the rent that's attributable to Donald Trump's 30%. And so you have about half of the rent flowing into the Trump organization that's not going through this outside ethics legal review process. And we don't even know what the legal review process was on the other half, but at least for half of it, it's just not happening at all. So it's promise after promise to just fall by the wayside. And you're left with, you know, a conclusion, which is that the plan that they had, you know, that they laid out to separate the presidency from the business was not a genuine plan. You know, the, the real plan was to turn the presidency into a business. And that's, look, when we decided to start this campaign in the first place, the camp, he was not expecting to win I don't even think he wanted to win. It was supposed to be, and this is his words, the greatest infomercial in the history of American politics. Mm -hmm. And it, I, I think the whole thing is crazy. The fact is he started doing well with his popularist view with birtherism. He really brought out the anger in the silent majority on politicians and how things were being run, promising based upon the art of the deal, how he's the greatest deal maker in history, that our politicians are all so stupid, and which many of them are, 
and that they make the worst deals, but he can do better. Look at all the great deals that I have done in all of my properties. I just find it interesting that the two best deals that he has are deals that he's not even involved with. But I do want you to talk to me for a moment about what was revealed through your reporting on Trump Tower, that the Chinese government through a state-owned bank has funneled millions of dollars into Trump's businesses, all while he was dealing with them on issues of global importance. Right. And, you know, this is the least that I was talking about before that shows that the math of their promise to donate the profits from foreign governments to the U.S. Treasury just doesn't add up. Uh, but it gets even more complicated than that. So that lease was set to expire in 2019. And so you have this situation where uh, presumably the Trump organization, and I don't know if you can speak to this at all, but was trying to figure out whether the Chinese should re-up that lease while Trump was working with China on issues that had major implications for everyone in the global economy. And now Trump told Forbes that he had just re-signed the lease back in 2015, but that doesn't really add up for a lot of reasons. It's not true, okay. by the way. It's okay. not true. I There's, was involved in that whole thing. I'm the one that brought them to the building initially, yeah. and I'm the one that created the second floor for them <laughs> as well. They had already found property that was four or five blocks over on Fifth Avenue for a substantial, substantial decrease in the price per square foot. They're paying like $105 a square foot at Trump Tower. But in this location- And, and how many square feet do they have now on the, on the new deal? They have one and a half uh, full floor. So what's that, 15,000 square feet or something? So is it, is it smaller than what they had or is it the same size? No, no, it's the same size. But what they, what they were finding is additional space in another building several blocks away that they were going to be paying under $50 a square foot right. for it. Now, why in the world would they stay as opposed to, I mean, they are a bank. They are responsible to shareholders, mm -hmm. right? And to maximize their own profit. Why would you pay? But who's their main shareholder? Right. The Chinese government. The Chinese government. So that's right. That's who they're responsible to. So were you the one who actually was working that deal to get it re-signed? The answer to that is no, because I was no longer there. Okay. But I'm talking about, I knew prior to my departure uh -huh. in 2017 that they were not going to renew. And they had told me that. The general that they manager were not going to renew bank, in 2019. That's right. And, and you didn't work on their renewal because you were gone by No, it. I did not. I see. That's so, right. I was no longer there. Yeah. And so one of the, of the interesting parts about that, and something that you know, know about too is the the Trump organization you know oftentimes leaks stories to the press which oftentimes prove to not be true and one of the questions that I had on that deal is that they there was an anonymously sourced story that comes out in Bloomberg saying that they that the Chinese were going to downsize at that space uh, when they renewed the deal but then Eric Trump later admits on stage that they were still on multiple floors of the building. So it's not clear if they downsized, nor is it clear how many square feet they currently occupy. And if we don't know how many square feet they currently occupy, then we don't know how much the Chinese government is indirectly paying the president of the United States today. Well, I don't know much, but what I do know, Dan, is that Eric should never go out and speak because Eric really makes no sense. The more he speaks, the dumber he actually looks. 
And I don't understand why they even allow him to do that. Um, I'm not aware that they've downsized. If they did, um, it's, again, uh, only they would know, and they're right. not going to disclose it. Is there any question that you would have for me that would give your reporting for next year, which, rest assured, next year he'll be worth $80 billion, uh, <laughs> in his estimation? Um, <laughs> you know, tell me, uh, is there any one specific thing that you couldn't figure out? Well, the, the, the overall thing that I would be curious about is just where you think that there are weaknesses. You know, the only way to make something better, which is what we're always trying to do with this valuation, is to identify where it's weak. And so if there are any th- places that you think, you know, that seems too high or too low, or I bet you they're fooling them on that, uh, then that would be particularly interesting. See, I see something a little bit different. I, yeah. I'm not so interested at this point in terms of his stated net worth or his sure. liabilities. Liabilities, we'll find out with the tax returns ultimately. And his stated net worth is whatever he's going to try to claim that it's going to be. And you'll have to do your due diligence within which to come up with the real numbers. But I think his real biggest problem is actually his tax implication, the liability mm-hmm. that will ultimately come out when the release of the tax return is fully reviewed and audited. I, I'm hearing from individuals who are forensic accountants based upon the New York Times article that we're talking about probably close to 300 or maybe a little more, 300 million worth of taxes that are actually due over the course and of- And what's the 300? Because the, the one that they label is 100. So what's the gap there? What's the 200 gap? Well, don't forget, you also have city and state and there were all- there are all sorts of numbers that were thrown out that mm-hmm. that did not add up, and the numbers that they thought were more in the range based upon um, one-year evaluation multiplied by the number seven years that they're able to go back and do the the recalculation on it. It'd be about you know um, somewhere at twenty-four and a half million a year, mm-hmm. give or take. So bringing you up to about three hundred million over the seven year. But what what people don't realize is that with your penalties and interest, that 300 becomes more like six and a quarter. Mm-hmm. It's 75% interest, 25% penalty. I mean, the numbers become staggering. Where is he going to come up with $600 million? He, there's no liquidity to the company. So yeah. where do you come up with the $600 million? You're going to have to start selling off assets. And what, what assets is he going to sell off? Well, some of the assets, as you stated in your article, uh, are underperforming. Mm-hmm. Well, those don't really have great value to it. So if you get rid of those, you don't really accomplish the goal. The only two that I see that he could, well, there's several actually. He can get rid of 555 and he can get rid of 1290, um, sell it possibly to Vornado, get a reduced price. But here's another thing people don't realize. For example, 40 Wall Street, he has a negative basis in the property. Mm-hmm. He paid $1 million for that building. And then Shortly thereafter, there was a tax shirari that he received um, money back mm-hmm. based upon the previous owner's um, tax liabilities. So he received money back. So he really has a zero basis in that property. If he sells it for the $440 million minus the loan, but he still has capital gain on that property, and that's not going to be anywhere near the amount that's going to be owed in the tax liability, which is why he's so afraid. Mm-hmm. for his tax returns to be revealed. So I think it really changes the whole dynamic of, you know, of your net worth. Your net worth is great. 
when you have no problems. Right. Well, and, you know, I think that, uh, I'd be curious if you disagree, but I think that the best thing that he could do for his business is to sell off the toys. And the first one is Mar-a-Lago because the value of that property is so enormous compared to the amount of profit that it throws off. Because as you know, the values of Palm Beach real estate have just soared. But I don't know if he could live with selling it. And that's one of the big questions with all his debt coming due is, is he going to have the stomach to do what he needs to do to sell off the toys and refinance the big buildings? And I think that's a big question. What's your sense of that? The answer is no. He won't, he won't sell it off um, unless he's going to be absolutely forced to do so. Mm-hmm. And even if it does get sold off, why would anybody buy to keep it as a club? when it's not profitable based upon how much money they would have to pay him. Let's assume then you turn it back into a single family home. Right. Who's going to pay a billion dollars for a home? No one's no one's saying that Mar-a-Lago is worth a billion dollars. The Trump organization thinks that the, said that Mar-a-Lago is worth $500 million, but nobody believes that. We value Mar-a-Lago at $180 million, which would make it, you know, an extremely expensive home. Uh, and if you look at some of the property deals in Palm Beach, it seems fair, um, but it's it's not it's not a billion, it's not five hundred million, and one hundred and eighty seems like pretty generous. But that would be pretty nice to get out one hundred and eighty million dollars of that property. And but the same problem goes if he ends up selling it for the hundred and eighty minus the mortgage that he may have on it, plus the fact he's got a very low basis, and I think he paid six million That's for right. the property a long, long time ago. Um, he still has the capital gain tax on that. He's going to put, what, $60 million or so, something like that. And it doesn't help with it. But again, Dan, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your expertise. And I hope that the listeners got a good understanding on Donald Trump's finances today, because Lord knows you work very hard to try to come up with those numbers, because we worked even harder to hide those numbers from you. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll argue about who works harder on it. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. I appreciate it. I'm not going to lie. Thinking about Donald Trump and his family sitting in Otisville prison makes me giddy with hope and laughter. First off, there's the actual need for this man to face justice and the consequences of his actions. The end game for all of this can't be that Trump just returns to Mar-a-Lago, plotting his takeover and polluting the airwaves for the next four years, threatening to run again. No fucking way. He needs to wear handcuffs and to do the perp walk. People will not be satisfied until the man is sitting inside a cell. There's not going to be some weak-willed Gerald Ford pardon for his crimes. The country won't be moving on or healing until he gets what's coming to him. So yeah, fuck Donald Trump. And beyond the pure karmic justice of it all, Trump going to prison would make for the world's greatest reality show. Imagine Donald Trump, Don Jr., and Eric all sharing a cell, working in the sewer treatment plant. Then there would be his appearance. In prison, he'd turn into an absolute freak show. Without access to his ridiculous array of hair products and attendants fixing his shoulder-length comb-over, he'd resemble no less than Golem himself. But this is all hypothetical. First, we must win. Vote away this man's executive privilege on November 3rd, and let's get this party started. And thanks for listening. Maya Culper is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. 
produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustad. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please register to vote. I'll do my part on this podcast, but to truly make a difference, you must vote this man out of office. So if you're not registered, go do it now and come out and make sure that you vote on November 3rd. Bum Bums, they are the plush with personality. Hey, it's Sisney, and each Bum Bums plush is as unique and diverse as the people who collect them. There are over 300 plus styles to collect. Check them all out at hashtag Bum Bums Bunch on Instagram and TikTok and at Bum Bums Official. They're also going to be at our Jingle Ball Village this year, so come check them out and get your chance to win one of the last pairs of Jingle Ball tickets and a Bum Bums. Plus, don't forget Bum Bums are available at Amazon, Target, Walmart, and specialty retailers near Mientras trabajas duro por el éxito de tus hijos, algo que no ves los puede estar afectando. Se llama estrés tóxico. Es la manera en que el cuerpo de los niños responde a experiencias difíciles. Aprende cómo ayudarlos en first5california.com.